has a really interesting job. He's in marketing, and for years, his role in particular, among some other things, has been to tend to the Gatorade account. Taking care of all Gatorade's digital marketing, online marketing, uh, their print material. And as he's been working with Gatorade, when he first arrived, he would share with me these stories that he was beginning to learn their internal culture. And he said, I'm learning new terms like POS, point of sweat. He said, I'm learning that in order to tell the story of Gatorade well, I have to learn that we are actually telling a story about what happens at the point of sweat. Because Gatorade's internal language is that we have been scientifically engineered to be the thing that all athletes would reach for when they have been brought to the end of themselves. That although it's a a sweet drink that you might enjoy drinking over lunch or some other time, the point for Gatorade is not that you would reach for Gatorade then, but that you would reach for it at the point of sweat. And so my brother-in-law has been working how to tell the story in such a way that every athlete would realize there is something that has been scientifically engineered to meet me in the moment when I think I can't go any further and to equip me to do that. And in many ways, I think what we are going to, to see this morning is we're going, to in, we're going to interact with a scripture that I believe has been designed for the point of sweat. For, for us as Christians, when we feel like we have been brought to the end of ourselves emotionally, spiritually, when the stuff of this world has just so wearied us that we think, I don't know that I can go any further. Those moments of heartache and struggle, the moments where things did not pan out the way expected, the moment where there is a miscarriage, the moment where there's a lost job, a wayward child, a broken relationship, the realities of living in a broken world, a broken world whose tentacles reach down into every one of our stories in a hundred or a thousand different ways that tempt us to believe that at this point of sweat, I have been brought to a point where I can go no further. And what I want to encourage us with this morning, I believe what these scriptures will say to us is that there are truths, there there are realities divine realities that have been delivered to us that if if we continue to reach for these and to dig down into these in the point of sweat they will bring satisfaction to a weary soul and we're going to look at a book that may have been overlooked in recent time in your journey if you're like many christians it's a book called habakkuk or habakkuk it's actually however you want to say it i'm going to stick with habakkuk and i hope you'll forgive me if you're one of the habakkuk Habakkuk people, right? I can't even say it. The emphasis on the wrong syllable. Um, I think as we look at this minor prophet, what we will see is something interesting. It's the only prophet in all of scripture that isn't speaking to people saying, thus saith the Lord. What we have is an argument between the prophet and God at the point of sweat. And it's preserved for us to teach us and to train us what do we do when we've been brought to the end of ourselves. And so with that saying, we're going to take a, a quick look of ch- chapter 1 and 2 of Habakkuk, hitting some highlights in these verses, and I believe what we will see is seven divine truths, seven divine truths that will satisfy your weary soul. So with that being said, allow me to begin for us in chapter 1 and verse 5. I just want to read verse 5 to get us started because this is where we'll be introduced to our first divine truth. And as I read, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, 
but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention this morning. Habakkuk 1 verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is the beginning of this interaction between this prophet who is wrestling with the point of sweat before God. In the first four verses, he's just laid out his claim before God going, there is evil, there is difficulty among your people, and I think, God, you might be deaf. I think, God, you might be cruel that you're allowing this to go on. And God's initial answer, the first divine truth that he shows to Habakkuk to begin to tend to his soul in this season of weariness, he says, my plan is way bigger than you've ever imagined. Did you hear it there? Four different ways in the beginning of verse 5 where he's telling Habakkuk to slow down and look. He says, look wonder, see, be astounded. In essence, he's saying, Habakkuk, stop and just look around for a moment. Pay attention. Look and be astounded. I am doing something, a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. In many ways, what what God is introducing Habakkuk to here is the wisdom differential. This is the wisdom differential that every parent feels with their child in all the different stages of child rearing. When they're little and they're, they're just a little baby crawling around and they want to stick a wet finger into a light socket and you think, I want to sit this baby down and talk to them about what an open circuit and a closed circuit is and how electricity works and what it will very surely do to your body, but this baby doesn't even have words. And so how could I possibly explain how electricity works and how a circuit is closed and what will happen if your wet finger is placed in there? The reality is that the, dis- the, the wisdom differential between parent and child is infinitely smaller than the wisdom differential between God and his people. And so at each stage of parenting, we're wrestling with this reality that, that as a parent, I understand far more than you ever could. And the truth is, I can't even explain it to you because you don't have the, the capacity to lay hold of these realities. The Lord, speaking to Habakkuk, says, I'm doing something you couldn't comprehend. He goes on in the following verses to say, in essence, what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up the most wicked nation on the planet, and they're going to come destroy you. Now, how's that for an answer? The first four verses, Habakkuk had said, there's, there's hard things going on, God. When are you going to show up? And God goes, no, 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 I got it under control. Don't worry. The most wicked nation on the planet's coming to destroy you. You might expect it, but this is not entirely satisfying to Habakkuk. He struggles to see this story. And in fact, what we realize is that it's going to be 700 years before it actually comes into focus what God is doing in this, this wisdom differential, seeing the end from the beginning. What we know is this, the Babylonians do come and they destroy the Israelite people and the people get scattered and the temple of God gets torn down. And as the people are scattered over the known world, things called synagogues start to pop up. And people begin to study the word of God. And this is the first time where the term God-fearer starts to get used. Because the Jewish people are now worshiping God spread out all in a decentralized way. And people that are not Jewish begin to study the word of God with them. And they begin to love this Yahweh even though they themselves are not part of the covenant people. And they were known as God-fearers. 
And then the Babylonians were destroyed by the Greeks. And you know what the Greeks did? They established one single language, a language that spread across the the known world. And then the Greeks were destroyed by the Romans. And you know what the Romans did? They established a network of roads that connected this world. And then Jesus came. And you know what Jesus stepped into in the fullness of time? A decentralized network of people that had been studying the Bible and waiting for the Messiah, who had a shared language and were connected by roads. And so when he ascended to the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit fell, there was a wildfire gospel movement. And it was accomplished by three wicked empires exerting their will on the known world. Now you think about Habakkuk standing where he is and God's going, I'm doing something you couldn't comprehend. He's talking about the fact that right now, Habakkuk, what you are wrestling with is tied up with things that won't find their culmination for 700 more years. Take a deep breath and realize that my story is way bigger than you've ever imagined. You see, we are all wrapped up in a story and we are tempted to believe that our story is what it is all about. As long as we live like our story is what this time is about, we will be confused. Things will not be in focus. The first divine truth that has to find purchase in our souls at the point of sweat is that God is doing something so much grander and so much bigger than my particular story. I even have to trust him with the with the dark and difficult moments. The second divine truth is this. God is going to say, I defy your simplistic equations. As you imagine, Habakkuk is not satisfied with the answer that the Babylonians are coming to destroy us. And so he takes up his argument with God again in verse 12 to 14. Listen to these verses. Some scholars have said these are the most impertinent verses directed towards God by, someone, by one of his children in the whole of the scriptures. Habakkuk is so bold with God. Listen, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea and like crawling things that have no ruler. What is it that Habakkuk is saying here? What he is saying to God is this. He is accusing God and he's disagreeing with him based off of his really excellent theology. He's saying, God, he's got good theology. Remember, he's a prophet. He's saying, God, what I know is this. Your eyes are too pure to look at evil. And so you are going to use the most wicked nation to exercise judgment on us? God, that's not your character and you can't do that. We are not going to die. What the prophet does is he takes his good theology and then he hastily and foolishly applies it, saying, God, here's the equation. You're allowed to work in these ways and you can't work in any other way. God, you are limited by the equation that I've worked out and you're not allowed to do any different. This is what religion does. Religion takes principles and creates a simplistic equation and says this is what God can and cannot do. And religion will lead our souls into a place that in the point of sweat, we want to we yell back at God and say, I'm done with you. How dare you? 
religion will say things to us like, if you just prayed more and believed more, you would have received your miracle and you wouldn't be struggling like you are. It will quote scripture. Religion will quote scripture, but it will quote it in hasty and foolish ways, saying things like, if you weren't a wave tossed by the wind, if you just had stronger faith, better religious dedication, you could have sidestepped this difficulty and everything would have been okay. You see, religion calls us to to play this if-then game with God of principles and saying, and God, you can't work any other way. Religion in some ways is always at arm's length from God. It's kind of like the neighbor or the acquaintance that you don't know that well. I remember one very uncomfortable interaction with a neighbor that didn't know us very well. My wife and I had a a four-year-old son at the time who had an infection on his hand, and the doctor had told us that we'd have to dress it day after day, which would include having to drain this injury in some painful ways. And so for a four-year-old that wasn't real excited about that, that was the least favorite part of everyone's day at that point. And it required a two-man operation, dad pinning son down because he was gonna fight against it with all of his might. And then mom would begin to dress the wound. And so at this appointed hour and the particular day, I am poised over my son, pressing him to the ground. My wife is working at this wound and he is screaming at the top of his lungs. Stop, it hurts, it hurts, stop. Well, unbeknownst to us, at the same time, there was a knock at the door that we didn't hear. But my six-year-old son at the time did hear it. So he ran to the door and opened the door. And he's standing there smiling, going, hello. And just over his shoulder, there I am, pinning my other son down. My wife is doing, stop, stop, it hurts. And it's a new neighborhood stopped by to introduce themselves. And they were looking at my six-year-old and then looking over his shoulder, watching us. And I looked up holding my son and we locked eyes. It was a very uncomfortable moment where I thought, how am I going to explain this, right? Because without context and without relationship, when you're just standing on the front porch and you're looking at that, you're going, I think that parent is cruel. Maybe I need to call CPS because that child does not sound like he's enjoying whatever is happening right now. You see, religion gets us to the front porch, but it doesn't get us to the living room. It gets its arm's length from God where we've got a few of our principles. We've heard some things in church, but we've never really sat at the feet of God. We've never trusted his character wholly and completely. And so with our simplistic equations, when we're in the midst of our suffering, we're going, God, you can't do this to me. I don't deserve this. Look at how I've loved you and prayed and I've done everything right. You owe me. That's religion. And God says, I defy your simplistic equations. Won't you just come in? Have some context. Know me. Walk with me. I am wild and and unruly and dynamic, and I'm doing things that are bigger than you've ever imagined. You see, I'm working on a plan much bigger than your life. And my work in your life will defy simplistic equations. Will you trust me? And then thirdly, the third The third truth, the third divine truth designed for the point of sweat is this. God says, I am unoffendable. I am unoffendable. Pay attention to this. And chapter two, verse two, is this this ongoing exchange is taking place. In verse one, Habakkuk had just said, okay, God, he had issued his his second and very serious complaint, and he says, I'm gonna go stand and wait for you to answer for yourself. 
I mean, how bold is Habakkuk? And then in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. Paying special attention to the first half of the verse, it says, And the Lord answered me. And the Lord answered me, and he told him to to write this vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. What is stunning to me is this, that here in our Bibles, preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit for the good of God's people is an argument between a prophet and God, a prophet who has given God everything he's got twice over, even saying, God, I think you're deaf. I think you're cruel. Where are you? You're not allowed to do this. And the Lord continues to speak with him. He continues to answer him. What I'd love for you to understand this morning, particularly this morning, if you are at the point of sweat, your God is unoffendable. He wants to stay in the conversation with you. He wants you to actually share what's going on. Can you imagine? This text is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I think oftentimes we are way too like religious and stoic, and we try to get really quickly to the, resol- the resolution, the happy song at the end, but the scriptures don't force that on us. In fact, they say, actually, let's walk through the valley together. There's a full 50 psalms in the middle of your Bible that are all laments, inspired by the Spirit to teach you how to pray, to say things like, God, where are you right now? How could you do this? Things that we would say, well, that doesn't seem right. I don't think I'm allowed to say that to God. And what he's saying is quit trying to play what, pray what's right and pray what's real. Give me your soul because, because actually I want the truth of what's happening in there. If we can deal there, we might make it off of the front porch into the living room. We might actually know one another. We might actually begin to have a mingling of souls and the real stuff of life when you begin to trust me enough to know that I won't be offended by your struggle and your emotion. You see, the Lord continues to answer Habakkuk. He continues to speak to him. I long for us to be a people that trust God enough to pray biblically and wholeheartedly, that lament in the moment of mourning that challenge and question when we're struggling, but we're in the conversation with God. I think oftentimes our religion causes us to try to be stoic and we pray the same way. Let's say it the Lord, thank you, almighty God. This is an amen. But there's all this stuff actually in our heart that never makes it out. And then we keep walking, living on the front porch rather than the living room with honesty, with the God who wants to hear from us. At the point of sweat, we need to realize that his plan is bigger than we imagine, that he defies our simplistic equations and we can bring it all to him because he's not gonna be offended. Well, the fourth reality is this, that his pace is perfect. As he he pens this response, he says, write this vision and then verse verse three uh, of Habakkuk two, as he writes this vision and he sends it out to be read, in verse three it says this, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What God is saying is Habakkuk, in the midst of this 
point of sweat being brought to the end of yourself, there will be times where you think this is taking too long. You will think surely this has escaped God. It's slipping through his fingers. He has forgotten and this is taking too long. Because let's just be honest. For those of us who've been through real suffering, who've been brought to the point of sweat where we feel like we're coming undone, in that moment, one more moment feels like too many moments, right? Like, you telling me just hold on and wait a second, that's too long. In my timetable, in this story that's about me, my suffering continuing any more past this moment just feels like I'm going to be swallowed by it. And God's going, I know it feels that way, but trust me, my pace is perfect. My timing is ideal. I know that you've been studying in the book of Genesis, even looking at the story of Joseph. His is a perfect picture of this. Could have easily thought that being forgotten and left in prison, a full 13 years between the time that he received a vision from God and before any of it comes to pass, and in the midst of that time, lots and lots of painful suffering, But what we know is that he was being prepared in the prison cell for what it means to be a prince. That God was working things into his soul through suffering that weren't going to get there any other way. That's how suffering works. It is placing things deep down into us that we could have never read about, we could have never learned, we could have never attained. Suffering was the only tutor that was going to be able to teach us. And what God is saying is, stay, my pace is perfect. I'm with you in the midst of the struggle. I sometimes even let my mind wander beyond Joseph to the 400 years where the people of Israel were slaves. You know, that, that passage of time happens pretty quickly scripturally, but I'm guessing it didn't happen real quickly for the people that lived it. Wouldn't it be interesting to hear the prayers of the Israelites for 400 years in slavery? Can you imagine? Generation after generation, they lived and they died, wondering, God, do you see our suffering? And then that generation would die and they'd give birth to the next, and that generation would go, do you see our suffering? Do you see our suffering for 400 years? What is it that God is doing in the midst of this? He, his timing is perfect. What he was setting up ultimately was the exodus, the salvation event of the Old Testament that was going to be a ballast to the human soul for thousands of years. But ultimately, their story was part of God's big story. And what he was saying is, trust me, even with the timing, what if our story is a chapter that is a struggle and challenge that's setting up future glory and joy. Will we trust God enough with our lives to endure a chapter like that? Well, the fifth reality is this, justice will prevail. I'll address this one rather quickly. Justice will prevail. God issues in chapter two, verses six, nine, 15, 19. Uh, he issues woes for, the, for Israel to, to, to sing over Babylon, in essence, even before Babylon comes and destroys Israel, he says, here's the song that you're gonna sing someday when Babylon finally is judged. In essence, what God is doing is he's telling them this. There will be moments where you think, is all of this injustice being missed by God? And God's going, no, no, no. I hate sin and I'm going to deal with it. I promise, trust me, when the time is right, I will deal with the fullness of sin. For the sake of time, let me keep moving. 
That's the first five. And I just want to say, if you're tempted as you're scrawling notes, you're thinking about someone in the point of sweat, I, I would warn you, this is not for counseling purposes. This is not to call someone and say, here's your paint by number ways to make it through the point of sweat. If you know someone who is suffering, go weep with them. Don't tell them about God's plan that's bigger. Weep with them. But these truths are intended to find purchase in the souls of the saints in deep place so that when we hit the point of sweat, we have a reserve that we can reach down into knowing God to be true in this way. You know, with that being said, the, the sixth is this. God says, I am alive and I'm on the throne. I'm alive and I'm on the throne. Look at verse 14 and verse 20. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in verse 20, it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is proclaiming to Habakkuk, who's wondering about all of the shaking up of the nations and all of the challenges that are pressing in, and he's going, oh yes, God is on the throne. And in the verses between those two statements by God, he talks about idols who are cold and powerless and can do nothing. The question for us is at our point of sweat, where else are we going to turn? Where else are we going to turn? I think we have been programmed, as it were, to, to think that things that are cold and lifeless are going to bring comfort. I know that I have. The, the click of the button for, for my Amazon account is so enticing. And I, there's something, there's like this little jolt when the box hits my front step and it's like, ah, it's arrived, whatever it is this time. Thinking that whatever this company can deliver today, if I need it, will create enough insulation towards the suffering and the struggle that's actually in my life. We are a people that have been taught that if we can buy a little bit more, we'll finally be insulated from sadness. And it's been made so easy, made so simple, but the truth is those things will never talk back to us. They're cold and they cannot suffice. And God sits enthroned over all of the trinkets and says, I am on the throne and I'm alive. Where else are you going to turn in your point of sweat. Where else are you gonna go? Who else is gonna speak to you tenderly? Who else understands completely what you're walking through? Well, finally, finally, the last divine truth of the seven. His plan is bigger than we imagine. He defies simplistic equations. He will not be offended by your emotional struggle. His pace is perfect. His justice will prevail. He's alive and is on the throne. And the last reality is this, the righteous will live by faith. In verse four, he said, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. We come to this point and we wrestle with this reality that each of these points invite us to trust God. But if we're actually at the point of sweat, we're going, I don't know. I don't know, preacher boy, with all your points about what God's doing and his story being bigger than mine. It just doesn't feel that way. How is this going to take care of me and the point of sweat? And beautifully, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, just after saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. And then he says, for as it has been written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know what he's doing? He's laying hold of the truths of Habakkuk. And he's saying, they've been 
fully, finally realized in the person and the work of Jesus. And what we realize is this, is that all seven of these truths find their home in Jesus. That when Jesus was brought to the point of sweat, but it wasn't just sweat, it was blood that he was sweating. As he was wrestling with how could this sort of injustice be worked in this moment, he was wrestling with God the Father, knowing that these things are true, but saying, is there any other way? And God said, I'm working something so much bigger than just this moment. I'm working the salvation of my people from every nation, tribe, and tongue from this Roman tree. It's so much bigger than we've ever imagined And he defies simplistic equations as all those who are watching this Messiah King, they were saying, no, there is one who's coming like a conquering king in the the lion, the tribe of Judah and the line of David. And they were going, it can't be him. But what they didn't know is that God's plans defy their simplistic religious equations and that his crown was going to look way more like a crown of thorns than a crown of gold. And he was going to ascend to a cross, not to a throne. He defied their simplistic equations of what a Messiah could be. And he was ultimately unoffendable as he was bleeding and dying and they were hurling their insults at him. They representing us with all of their sin and their brokenness being heaped upon him. He in that moment unoffendable said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. It all happened accomplished according to his timeline and his perfection. His pace was perfect at the fullness of time. Jesus has accomplished these things. And if you've ever wondered if God actually hates sin, we only have to look at the cross to recognize that his justice will prevail. He so hates sin that he was even willing to wound his own son to pay for it. His justice will prevail. This is good news, but that's not the end of the story. He's alive, and he's on the throne. And what he's saying is this. I have been to the valley of the shadow of death. I have swallowed the fullness of human suffering and sadness into my own bones. Where else are you going to turn? I understand, and I love you. And I can do something with that suffering. I can satisfy your weary soul. At the point of sweat, turn your gaze upon our king in his point of sweat. And realize that there are divine truths that will satisfy your weary soul. Let me pray for us. Oh God, thank you. You're so good to us. I thank you that you're at work in the world, that you're at work in our stories in ways that will reverberate into eternity. You're doing things in our little chapter of life right now that have implications far beyond our story. And I pray that each of us would be comfortable, that you would usher us into this place of seeing King Jesus sweating and suffering on our behalf and realizing that there is satisfaction for our weary souls, that we can trust you even in the midst of our suffering. Bring us to this place, God, for your glory, for our joy, for the health and the wholeness and the maturity of this body. God, help us to believe these truths and to find satisfaction even in the midst of our weariness. We bless you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, As we respond to God's word preached, we do so by coming forward and remembering that very moment, that point of sweat. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. Take and eat every one of you. And in like manner, after supper, he took the cup and he poured it out and said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant shed for you. And he said, as often as you gather together, you, you eat this bread and you drink this cup. And what we are doing is we're, we're proclaiming his death. We're proclaiming his death to one another as we take this meal. We're reminded that he came and he paid this price for our sin to provide a way home for us, to provide hope and healing even in the midst of our suffering. We proclaim his death as we take this meal, knowing that one day he will come again and we will feast together. In light of that, I would invite you to respond to what God is doing in this place come and take communion. You want to, may want to pray in response or later pray with a prayer partner, but let's respond to the Lord in light of what it is that he's doing. Amen.